Hi, Primary Art Leads. I just wanted to record a video message for you. Um, some of you may have seen a few weekends ago, or it may have been last weekend, um, I was part of the national conference um, with the NSEAD, and I presented a brief presentation about cultural capital alongside two other brilliant panellists. And um, I just wanted to share with you the longer version of that presentation um, because it might be helpful to you um, as you're thinking about returning to primary school and leading your subject of art and design. Um, so I just wanted to give you the full version of that presentation because it's all about um, some fundamental ideas that I think could underpin your art and design provision as we move back to school in September. Um, and obviously I know that you'll be starting to think about planning over the summer holidays. Um, so the overall theme of the weekend conference with the NSEAD was a lot around how art, craft and design educators can rise to the challenges we are facing. Um, and then I narrowed that down to think about primary schools in particular. Um, so on the subject of art educators rising to challenges, I did start by acknowledging that teachers are constantly rising to challenges, um, but also acknowledging that the level of adaptability uh, required of you at the minute is really, really severe, um, and that you're probably dealing with a lot of uncertainty um, about the next few days, the next few months, and even the return to school in September. Um, I also know that as art teachers in particular, there are practical um, challenges around social distancing, etc. So I know that there's a lot for you to consider and think about. Um, just a bit of background about me, I've been um, nearly 20 years in art education. I started as an artist with a fine art degree, uh, went on to qualify as a secondary school um, art teacher, which I did for some time. Then I moved to primary and I've worked in state and private. Um, and now I focus on primary art advocacy and consultancy. Um, at the minute, we're coming out of lockdown, possibly, uh, so things are slightly shifting again. We've also had the um, events around the Black Lives Matter movement unfolding. So there's been a lot going on. Um, and what I'm proposing here is a way moving forward of um, how art and design in primary settings can respond to what could be taken as a call to change. Um, this year we've all been exposed to the flimsiness of much that we thought was fixed in the world and for some of us in ourselves. In some cases that's really good because there are things that absolutely needed to change. Um, but it doesn't make it any less uncomfortable to see and feel things just kind of destabilise around us. Um, of all the things that we count on as consistent, school life is really up there. The stability provided by school life has anchored me many times over as a child, but also as a teacher. That routine, that regularity, um, that being part of something that has such a great purpose. Um, so at best for some children, the realisation that school is fallible will have been a bit unnerving. And at worst, as you know, the closure of schools will have left some children really lacking in positive experiences, um, routines, and for some lacking in safety. So, first and foremost, I propose and I hope that schools will focus less on this term of the children catching up and more on how schools, how they can catch up with what's needed by those children and the parents and the teachers, the school communities. 
So I've really been asking myself the question, how can a quality primary art provision support this? And I, I propose an approach to art in the primary setting that is rooted in these core areas. Number one, well-being. Let's just put well-being at the heart of what we're doing. Two, cultural understanding and representation as an alternative to cultural capital right now. Three, creativity. And four, links to creative industries. Lockdown revealed a tendency in all of us, almost all of us, to turn to creativity in times of uncertainty and stress. For lots of us, we remembered a natural inclination towards making things and creative endeavours really offered a lot of us some respite and through the act of being absorbed in some kind of creative flow and not in our worried mind state, we did find some solace. In that creating state, even if you're not fully conscious of it, your mind somehow does find space for processing what's happening in the world and we often come out of those creative endeavours feeling better for it. For a few months back there, it really felt that making and creating had become popular culture. Lots of us witnessed the popularity of the fantastic Grayson's Art Club. There were streams of Instagram posts and for myself, WhatsApp messages from friends and family who'd started baking, crafting, just arting. And children need opportunities to engage with creative practices so they can experience this flow state that provides that sense of well-being for the present moment but also so that they then have that creative outlet as a resource that they can turn to and maybe even monetize if they're lucky um, should they need it because we know that life gets tough for all of us whether it's a global pandemic or something on the more individual level and if we can provide children with resources such as creativity to help them process life, to help them process things when it gets challenging, that's really doing them a great service for the future. We all probably know or have ourselves experienced some kind of um, mental health issue, anxiety, depression, even just low level stress, we need to have resources and ways of dealing with those things. So I strongly advocate that come September, we make time in our school days for free flowing creative activities. They're not outcome focused and they're probably not even looked at or appraised by you, the teachers. It's the act of being engaged in these activities that's important and it's actually its own reward. Things like observational drawing, even painting mandalas, handling clay, playing with different materials, those sorts of things all count. I really love doodle books and I've used them in schools before and had really positive um, outcomes from having doodle books in terms of behaviour instances locked. So a doodle book is something that can just sit on the classroom table and at various points throughout the day, I like transition time, so when you come in in the morning, maybe after lunch, after break, you can just get the doodle books out and doodle. Um, it doesn't have to be anything particular, you're just taking your pen or pencil for a walk. Um, and that, in that process, children will get lost in that kind of feeling of creative flow and hopefully there'll be some benefit to their general mood and well-being. I really think it's great if teachers can join in with those things. They don't have to be long, they can be two to five minutes. 
So I believe that even though at the minute the goalposts do feel ever-changing for you when you're trying to plan, I think we can prioritise well-being and I really think we can plan ways for our subject of art to help support well-being in primary schools. The second core kind of theme is addressing cultural capital in terms of cultural understanding and representation. This is a really important one, especially given um, the way that it seems we're waking up a bit to the importance of um, diversity and correct representation. I worked once with an academy chain who would boast that their core knowledge curriculum was so effective at bridging gaps that children as young as year two were returning home feeling smarter than their parents with superior knowledge. And this was spoken about in relation to cultural enrichment, as we were calling it then, um, in other words, cultural capital. So they were saying things like we're increasing social mobility because these children are outgrowing their parents. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that, but it would also make me feel quite sad because I'd imagine in that particular school, we had a huge demographic of um, children who for whom English was their second language. And I'd imagine those children returning home after a day at school and correcting their parents, um, broken English, their accents, their dialect, and perhaps returning home and hearing that very familiar comforting voice as incorrect because school had said so. Now, of course, I am not anti-literacy, but there was something about that that made me feel uncomfortable. Yes, a lot of people do have visions of their children surpassing them in terms of education and career choice. In fact, even having a career choice is something that a lot of our parents didn't have. However, I do think that it's sad that if in providing the children with a good education, we somehow discount their parents, their accents, their heritage. And I feel the same with access to cultural organisations. Yes, I am in favour of increased opportunities for all to engage with the arts and culture. And I work with cultural organisations around these sorts of themes. But I'm not in favour of writing off the cultural experiences of the children themselves from certain backgrounds in doing so. I have to admit that early in my art teaching career, I may have thoughtlessly asked classes such things as, who's been to an art gallery before? Put your hand up. Um, and I was inviting those children whose parents engage with that specific form of accepted culture to proudly raise their hands and those whose parents don't to maybe sit there feeling a bit alienated by the question, despite them probably having really rich cultural experiences of their own to be proud of. Now, throughout lockdown, children have obviously spent lots of time at home with their adults and there will undoubtedly have been disparities in the sorts of learning experiences provided. In my home learning video number eight, I actively encouraged parents to be homeschool rebels. And I did this because I felt concerned that some parents might lack the confidence to, and may need support with, not how to teach the brilliant resources provided by schools, but how to deviate from the homeschool timetable a bit. I suggested sharing family histories, photographs and stories as a day or two of learning, enriching their children when using themselves and their ideas as a resource. I did this because it's not escaped my notice as a teacher, but also just from conversations with my own friendship groups and peers, that not all of us can speak with confidence and knowledge about our own family histories. 
I've taught many children, secondary and primary, who couldn't say with certainty where their mum or dad, who they lived in the same house with, were born, or which languages were even spoken at home. In contrast, some individuals have their family histories communicated to them with pride, they know where they are from geographically and in relation to a substantial family tree. They have photographs of ancestors, they own family heirlooms, and these are passed from generation to generation. In my experience though, some children don't have that same enriching experience. In my friendship group, this seems to be mainly children of immigrants. Some of us are not even sure of our exact birth dates or surnames or parents' ages even. Some, like my friends, like myself even, are not sure which country our great-grandparents were born in. We only have a sense because of surnames and skin colour. Surnames have been changed in migration, possessions have been lost or taken, and I'm not sure why, but with some parents and elders, there is less of an inclination to talk about family history. My own grandmother is full of interesting tales, but she delivers them sporadically. For example, I only learnt after a few years of living in South London, and age 37, a few years ago, that her and my grandfather got married in the town hall that was right near my flat. I'd always assumed that Guyana was their place of marriage. Of course, some stories are hard to tell, especially where the migration is forced and where lives are impacted by war, natural disaster or other traumatic experiences. However, I think that it is a form of privilege to know about your family and that there must be such a valuable beauty in being able to reach back through time with your family. Even though these stories get altered and they can be subjective, there are bound to be facts intermingled with each person's retelling. Knowing about your family helps you understand your place in the world and this gives you a certain amount of confidence about who you are and that confidence is empowering. And in terms of cultural capital, we need children who are confident and who know themselves. Lots of schools are great at outreach about how to extend formal lessons at home, but how about empowerment around how valuable parents and carers are as a resource, regardless of their own educational experience or personal stories? Many artists use their families and histories as stimulus for their work. I believe that confident children who feel valuable and valued trust themselves and their surroundings more and this is a good foundation for being a curious and self-motivated individual and learner. Increasing cultural capital cannot just mean bridging gaps by projecting a more valuable culture onto the children. We must value and acknowledge their unique cultures too through representation and celebration. And we don't do this with token Black History Weeks or a how many languages are spoken in our school display board. Such in initiatives fail to celebrate the nuances in the children. We do this with embedded and reoccurring opportunities for children to explore and celebrate who they are and where they come from, so that they can be in this world with a sense of pride and entitlement. A strong sense of self can give you the confidence to engage with other cultures without diminishing your own. Similarly, with the art and artists that we choose to include in our curricula, 
I've also always passionately advocated for diversity there so that children feel represented and know that art is produced by many people, including people that look like them, their parents or their grandparents. And we must also broaden definitions of art to include art forms and artists that may have been labelled as domestic art, folk art or indigenous art. Through well-designed opportunities and resources, primary schools and secondary schools and cultural organisations can support families with exploring themes of identity and heritage, just like many artists utilise such themes in their work. Lastly, on cultural capital, conversations and art shared between children who know about their own families and the nuances of their personal history can support an appreciation of diversity and equality, equality and help to do away with harmful stereotypes, encouraging a genuine understanding of each other. I believe that in order to increase your cultural capital and engage with the agreed culture of a place, you should first feel confident and proud of your own culture. The third theme that I think should be placed at the core of our primary art provision is creativity. Creativity is what is needed. The coronavirus lockdown and the murder of George Floyd and subsequent events could all be a call to change. Maybe this year is telling us that some things need to change, some things don't have to be the way they are just because they always have been so. We can live differently and the things we take for granted are not necessarily the way we want them to be. It could be time to reimagine the future like creative thinkers do. Creatives distill the world and manipulate and reconstruct. They imagine and generate new possibilities that may seem unusual and unreal, but can inform and transform, and in turn add realistic and practical value to the world we live in. When we allow children to experience creatively developing ideas and outcomes in different cultural forms, not just visual arts, we are literally shaping the way that they think and I believe that this world really needs children who think creatively. Creativity is there in all of us. It can be nurtured, but it can also be dulled and altogether forgotten about with lack of use. I believe that a good primary art provision can support schools in shifting away from being a place where children worry themselves with giving us, the adults, what we expect through the work they produce, the answers they give and the exams they sit. I've worked with many schools and teachers to plan primary art projects where the teacher's role is more towards facilitation of the children creating art in any medium to express their own ideas. It's effectively conceptual art. A while back I was really interested and moved actually to see that Year 5 children were concerned with issues as broad as Brexit, period poverty, living in care, endangered species, None of these are topics that were particularly well covered within school. They were the children's own concerns and preoccupations. I recommend including time for exhibitions in projects like this because it's so important for the children to experience creating art that comes from inside that then reconnects back out with an audience. And it's important for them to witness how their own artwork and ideas are valid and valued. 
This way of working is much more pupil-led and it encourages children to work in a multidisciplinary way, researching and collating, just like real artists do. How children engage with school content has adapted for home learning already and I think we can build on this change. We need to give the children the opportunity to recognise what is in the world and imagine what can be through genuine participation in their own learning. Finally, it has been my observation that links to real creative industries are easily yet quite infrequently made in primary art classrooms. Yet I know from the conversations I've had with artists who make their livings in creative industries that it was often some meeting with a professional in their field that inspired their own journey. We can't aim for something that we don't know exists. So we should create schemes of work that are sometimes around fashion designers, set designers or illustrators so that children have the chance to understand how the creative industries do actually exist. Some of us are really lucky and we make a living creating and doing things that we love rather than draining our energies and jobs that we hate. The more that the children know about what is possible out there, the more they have a chance to do the same. So, in our primary settings, maybe we can begin to plan for art for well-being as a lifelong tool to soothe and reset us. Maybe we can plan for creativity to help us reflect and reimagine our futures and cultural capital can begin through engagement, celebration and representation to support equality. And we can have links to real-life creative industries to inspire and give context to our lessons. Thank you for listening. I hope that that has maybe inspired some thoughts for you around how you can move forward with your art provision in primary schools so that we are creating art experiences for our school communities that are addressing what is needed at the moment.